Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 300. 300 episodes. I never believed when we began this program that it would last this long, but it's only been growing both in its listenership, which is all of you, and the questions that you've submitted, and my attempt, humble attempt, to try to respond to these questions through the sources of the Rabbeim, addressing all the issues that we all address, struggle with, whatever it may be. I would have loved to be able to say that in this episode 300, we'd be talking about everything upbeat about life, but we've been flooded, literally flooded, with questions and questions about the coronavirus. And being that Chassidus and Teda in general addresses all issues in life, whether they're positive or they're challenging, obviously we have to rise to the occasion and address this topic as well. So I've spoken about it a number of times. I released a special, two special videos on Purim about the coronavirus and its spiritual counterpart, so to speak, spiritual antidote. You can find that online at our site and our web and our YouTube channel. Coronavirus, a spiritual antidote to coronavirus. And we will continue and answer many of the questions that came in. I don't know if I can address them all. They're just too many. And uh, of course, the whole hysteria, panic even, that has consumed the world in an unprecedented fashion. And if uh, this is not an opportunity, what is an opportunity when you have a wake-up call like that for Teir to share its message with each one of us and that we can continue sharing it with all those around us. Virtually every person on earth is being impacted by this. Who would believe? And impacted in ways of, you're talking about affecting schools, travel, events, weddings, work. And it seems to only be accelerating. The Rambam says everything is a lesson in life. And especially in the beginning of Hilchas Tainius, the laws of fasting, he says that it would be cruel to say things just happen by accident. Mikra Niklis, everything has a deeper lesson of introspection and soul searching. So we will address that. I also want to not uh, ignore the fact that what we always do is the weekly Parsha, which this week is Vayaka Pakude. It's also the 25th of Adar, which is the birthday the 119th birthday of the Rebbe Tzachai Mushka, and, um, and also Pasha Sachidish, as we go into the month of Nisan. So let's begin with the coronavirus. The timing is interesting, of course, that's literally in the days of Purim to Pesach, Mismach Geula These are times that both during the Persian era, when we celebrate the, the Ness of Purim, as well as before that, the Egyptian era, when we celebrate the Ness of Pesach, both of them were Geulis, were redemptions from challenging situations. And uh, in many ways, I'm not going to compare challenges, but in many ways far more challenging than everything that we've ever been through. And what do we see? That despite the harsh 210-year bondage in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, 
the Jews came out of it and became a true nation, a growing nation, a thriving nation. And Kishayana Esam, as they were oppressed, in direct proportion to that, they flourished and thrived. Purim, in its own way, a very different type of event, more of a Nes Malubish Beteva, a miracle that was more manifest in natural events, at least ostensibly. But the same idea, there was a genocide plan, literally to annihilate Rahman al and Noshim Noshim Vitaf, all men, women, and children. And it was Venapachu was all turned around and became the great holiday of Purim that we just finished celebrating. And we go from Purim into Pesach, Mismar Geula Legula. So above all, right there we have the first lesson of all. And that is, no matter what the situation is, we never retreat. We never are controlled by fear or panic. We're always rising to the occasion. We don't understand God's mysterious ways. And however, we know that any challenge that comes our way, we were given the strength to deal with it. So the first thing is to assuage and to calm down the panic. This doesn't mean we don't have to be prudent and be careful. The Taylor tells us that you have to protect health and health above all is most important. However, that doesn't mean it has to be done in a fearful way, in a panicky way. Our children are looking at us. Others are looking at us. So we have to see a situation like this as being one where we do whatever has to be done and follow the guidelines that the Tater tells us to listen to the medical authorities, governmental agencies, the different organizations, the health organizations that are addressing this uh, pandemic. At the same time, our attitude, our inner fortitude remains stronger and more resolved than ever, even as we navigate through this, and even as some schools need to be shut down and different public gatherings have to be minimized because they want to contain the, the spread of this virus. And we learn from Pesach, from Purim and from Pesach, how we deal with all situations. And there you see that despite the fact that, yes, we do everything we can, shtadlus, efforts, with governmental agencies and so on, Leich Knez Kola Yehudim is what Mordechai and Esther said. To gather the Jews all together and to do what? To pray and to do Ruchnizdik, spiritual activities, because that ultimately is even more vital. You talk about the long term and the bigger picture, and especially more vital in the human psychological attitude, knowing that we have that fortitude. You know, people are saying, Completely shaken up. What's going to be? Now, seemingly everything was under control, and now life is not under control anymore. Well, maybe this is in a situation where it's a wake-up call to tell us that maybe we're never under control. God is in control. There's a mystery to things. Just because there was the illusion that we seem to be able to figure everything out, here you see a minuscule virus, what kind of impact it could have in the world. So it's humbling, but also wakes us up to the reality that life is much more complex than we'll ever know. And as much as we need to do our efforts to contain the virus, to eradicate it ultimately, we also have to realize that there is a bigger picture at work and we don't know. As much as we understood and we thought we were under control, we see how the markets are being affected by it. We see all the other elements I mentioned before are being affected, all this tells us that there's a higher hand, there's a greater hand, and that when we sense that vulnerability 
that makes us actually invulnerable. When you try to convince yourself you're invulnerable because we have all the technologies in the world and we thought we control everything, when that's not true, that really creates vulnerability, as we see today. But if you knew you're, we know that we're invulnerable because we know that we are fragile, we know that life is mysterious, that itself, recognizing that, allows us to connect to the source of all life, which is God, and gives us the betachem, the trust, and the faith, which builds that fortitude and strength to be able to forge ahead, even when there's a challenging time. And that's vital. In times like this, those of us that have that, those inner resources are able to ride through it. Those, God forbid, that don't have to now access it, which is harder to do in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of, uh, for some, a panic. So these are lessons, basic lessons in every given situation. But there's a bunch of specific questions that came in around this topic, and I will address them now. So the first question someone asked was coronavirus. How did our, how did our ancestors deal with plagues? Are there places in Tanakh where plagues or virus-type illnesses that occurred were recorded, perhaps like the story of Rabbi Akiva's students, the 24,000 students that were killed in an epidemic for not respecting each other, is what he's referring to, or this writer is referring to. And what did our biblical ancestors ancestors do to stop these plagues? Throughout the Torah, aren't there numerous stories of diseases and plagues that happened? What do we do then physically and spiritually to stop the plagues? So yes, we find in the Torah actually references to Magefa, a plague, an epidemic. And it was always understood that despite the fact that there's always natural reasons for all these events, especially one that affects many people, but it was always understood, as I mentioned before from the Rambam, that there's a deeper forces at work. And though we do not look at it like, oh, you did this sin, that's why you're punished. Absolutely not. But the idea that we look into our hearts and souls and say, what can I do about a situation that seems to be an epidemic or a pandemic or any other catastrophe that affects many people is a sensitivity of realizing that, yes, that we can improve our spiritual lives. And when we do that, we can in turn affect even the, the magafis, so to speak, the epidemics or pandemics around us. In Tov Shem Vov in 1986, the Rebbe, I believe in Yudal uh, Nissen Sikh, I'm not sure if it was Yudal Nissen, the Rebbe speaks about this, he speaks about the Rambam, Pei Gimel Halochas. The Rambam has 83 Halochas, 83, halachas, 83 books of Halochas. 83 is the gematria of Machla, illness. Why? Because the Teda, which is God's blueprint for life, preempts any form of Machla, any form of illness. 83. What is the point? You could say, one second, here's a virus that's spreading to do with uh, something with the connected to Tater, not connected to Tater. It was a virus that spread from animals, however it began, maybe they're not even clear about that, and now spreading all over the world. So the answer is that there's always deeper reasons behind everything. So when we connect stronger to Tater's Chaim, the Tater of life, what it does is it gives us spiritual life, which in turn strengthens also our physical lives. That's why the Gemara says, Achosh someone who has a headache, Yasek should immerse themselves in studying Teira. Achosh someone who has an arm pain and arm, should study Teira. Svarim explained, because the Teira, 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 Adam, 
the human being and the entire world was created through Teda. So when you learn Teda, Teda, Teda corresponds to that part of the person, human being. And that when you learn that piece of Teda, it can help heal that situation like we know about mitzvahs. There's 613 mitzvahs, 248 positive mitzvahs, which correspond to Ramach Eivarim, the 248 limbs, and 365 negative mitzvahs, Leisase, which refer to the Gidim, the sinews, the, the, the different uh, the, the, uh, elements inside of a human being. What's the connection? The connection is because everything physical has a spiritual counterpart. So when you actually study that Torah and do that mitzvah, Sefer Charedim is a, a famous Sefer that talks about which mitzvahs correspond to which part of the person. So for example, when a person is, does chesed, gemilas chesed, kindness, doke, they're actually strengthening their heart. The mid of chesed within your being. When a person learns teda, they're strengthening the mind. The thing is, we don't know which part of teda corresponds to which part of the body. That's why it doesn't always work, because then you have to study the entire teda to make sure it covers every part. Which part corresponds to that head, the head situation, which, which will deal with the headache. So the Rebbe says there in that sikha, in 1986, he talks about the pei gimel. So teda, when teda heals, it's that there's some... It's not just that it heals, it heals in a way, first of all, it's preventive medicine, that it prevents it altogether. And it heals in a way that even when it happens, it's healed as if it never happened in the first place. That's the ultimate form of healing. So every form of machla, every form of illness or epidemic, it can be addressed that way. This, again, the need to emphasize, this goes hand in hand with everything we need to do medically and professionally and listening to the authorities. It's not a contradiction. Tate is always these both combinations. We fight the battle on both fronts. So the more we strengthen our spiritual lives, the more we connect to Tate Mitzvah, which is the source of true health and true healing, that too has an impact. And I would add, on the contrary, just as this virus, which is as viral impact that's spreading all over the world, how much more impact is the other way around, that we should use it in a good way to do something good, like the Rambam says, one act, one good word, one good thought, can tip the scales and bring the world and each of us individually true of Hatzola. Salvation and, uh, and, and redemption. So just as something spread from one part of the world to our part of the world, why can't we, in our little corner of the world, spread goodness and kindness with that type of ripple effect that can transform the world? That's how we have to look at events like this. So not just playing defense, not just protecting ourselves, but actually going on the offense in a way that obviously are acceptable and the way the medical authorities are telling us how to do things to actually create a revolution of goodness and kindness. And today with technology, you can do that, even if you don't go into public areas. So in responding to the question, yes, our ancestors, whenever they saw some type of magefa, some type of plague, some epidemic, pandemic, that's how they looked at it. They did whatever was necessary medically and prudently and professionally. At the same time, also increased and strengthened their spiritual lives. And that is a lesson also to us today. Next question. <clears throat> Has the Rebbe ever made public statements about pandemics and what 
we can do on a physical and spiritual level to stop them. I don't recall anything specific, but what I just said about, in general, the Jewish attitude, obviously the Jewish attitude, the Torah attitude, is the Rebbe's attitude. And we know in smaller instances, it was always the case, whenever there was something that happened negatively, not necessarily medically, whether there was an attack, a terrorist attack, God forbid, killings, and so on, it was always about obviously doing whatever you can physically, but think of Mifzit film. Started right before the Six-Day War. After the Yad Hamisha, the, the tragic killing by terrorists in Kfar Chabad, the Rebbe sent Shluchim there, opened up organizations. Every negative thing was always, the response was always a spiritual strengthening of our mitzvahs, of our commitments, and so on. Next question. Add a mitzvah to help stop the virus. We learned this week in Daf Yemi that after King David made a census, a plague broke out and 100 people per day passed away. The rabbis at the time decreed to add a new mitzvah of saying 100 brachas per day and the plague stopped. My question, do the rabbis today have the authority to institute a new mitzvah to help stop the coronavirus? Generally speaking, the rabbis today and generally the last generation stay away from adding any mitzvahs. However, that doesn't mean they cannot designate a yem tefillah, a, a special prayers, which I see some have begun doing, and increasing in the hidr of mitzvahs. To go add, like that time in the Gemara, a hundred brachas, that required a particular authority in Zmanah Shas. So that's not technical, but that doesn't mean there aren't many things we can do and we should do. And I'll soon be quoting something interesting, very interesting, from a precedent that happened in 1831 when there was the outbreak of a plague called the cholera, or chelera in Hebrew. Chelera, a, bad, a, a very bad uh, illness. And uh, how it was addressed at the time. So, sometimes God likes expressions of Jewish unity, such as large prayer gatherings, etc. On the one hand, it would make sense to have a large gathering to say till and to help stop the spread of the coronavirus. But on the other hand, large gatherings may increase the spread, God forbid. And we see now that the government and, uh, and other authorities, local and the state level and federal level, are actually forbidding gatherings of large numbers. So which path should we take? Personally, if I were a big rabbi, I would organize a large prayer gathering, but ask that everyone wash their hands before attending. I would ask that anyone with flu symptoms not attend but participate from home via the Internet. Well, this question must have been written a few days earlier than this program because things have changed. So it's very clear that that's not the approach to take because of the risks involved. But to create a prayer where the whole world is united in prayer, even if they're in their own privacy of their homes, even when they're alone, but we're all doing it together, is definitely a very positive and a very, a very uh, seemingly appropriate thing to do. Prayer, and the same thing with uh, adding in mitzvahs and adding in everything possible to bring more light into the world. There's no question about that. So... With that, I go into the next two questions, which is, are the yeshivas that are closing due to coronavirus violating the edict? Shemer mitzvahs le'yoda dover ra. Someone who, who keeps mitzvahs will not know of anything negative. Is there any mitzvah bigger than learning Torah? Is there, is, that, uh, is there a lack of faith that we're closing the schools? 
It's true, it says that, but there's another thing called pikuach nefesh, which is life. Life preservation precedes everything, except the three Yavedas of Yarek Val Yavir. So in the situations when one's doctors and authorities and professionals are advising that schools be closed because of the spread and to protect those that can be hurt by it, that takes precedent over anything. And that itself is what Tatus says to do. This does not mean that we stop learning Tatus, God forbid. You can learn Tatus at home. You can learn Tatus in, in a more small, select group. But everything goes on, moves on. However, we have to listen to authorities. So that is not even a question. So that brings us also to the question of davening at home. Under exigent circumstances, is it permissible for someone to daven at home instead of going to a minyan in shul because of fear of catching the coronavirus? So this leads me to something I wanted to quote much earlier, but now that we're already covering all of this, let me quote Rabbi Akiva Eger, the great Rabbi Akiva Eger. In the year Tovkuf Tzadik Aleph in Poland broke out the plague the, called cholera, or as written by some G'dayim then called Chelera, Cholera, Cholera, in English pronounced cholera, C-H-O-L-E-R-A. It took many, many lives. And Rabbi Akiva Eger wrote then a letter addressing exactly this issue about davening. It's a letter dated the second day of Nitzavim Tavkuf Tzadik Aleph, that's 1831. He was in Posen, the city called Posen, and it was then the kingdom of Prussia. And in the letter he addresses exactly this, being asked about davening in a shul, and it says, Ladaiti, in my opinion, it is true that coming together in a small, small, enclosed and, uh, space is not appropriate now because of the disease, because of the pandemic or epidemic. And rather, it's better to dive in smaller groups. And he actually says, 15 people, not more than 15 people. And do it in different times so everybody can be, finish davening, but it should not be in large groups. Makes it very clear. He even goes on to say, that situation requires that you can't go to Ashul because of this issue, then that, of course, takes precedent. He also talks about different prayers to say, different Tehillim to say, so he clearly made a suggestion, Rabbi Akiva Eger, that is, of what can be done. And uh, it's printed, actually, in his, this is uh, from the letter, a letter from Rabbi Akiva Eger, printed in his Chidushim Amsechta Nedarim, Daf Lamates, if you want to look it up. If you want to get a copy of this, just send us at mylife at chsidasupply.com in the forum. Give us your email address and I'll send you a copy of the actual letter of Rabbi Kivega. And he talks about saying special uh, in the morning and the evening, different mizmeri tilim, kapitlach tilim, and uh, in addition to other prayers that he suggests. To the extent that he went that far, he said that in order to enforce this because of the danger, you can even employ and work with the police of the particular location, wherever this may be relevant. Now, in addition to that, it's interesting in this letter, I'm not going to go through all the details, he also suggests things about eating, foods to avoid, of what where to walk and to open up the windows in your home to make sure there's fresh air. A bunch of very practical suggestions as well. I think we can learn from this because I'm sure there's maybe other instances, but this one is very clearly documented. Rabbi Akiva Eger addressing an issue that can we can derive and learn for today in a very practical way to the point that he was actually, when the word got back to the king 
And we're talking about the Frederick um, was the, the, the third, was the monarch, was the king of Prussia. He actually acknowledged and sent some award, I think, to uh, Rabbi Akiva Eger for his participation in helping stem and ultimately uh, control the, the epidemic at the time, the cholera epidemic. Okay. So what we see from all of this is two sides, again, to sum up. On one hand, we have to do everything prudent and practical and listen to authorities and to ask a doctor. And not one doctor, you can ask a second doctor and then ask a third and do the, what the, rave, the, the majority say. At the same time, we always understand that we look for anything we can add in our spiritual fortitude and our spiritual commitment is always valuable and ultra-valuable in times like this. And especially to demonstrate that we don't shrink in fear, we don't retreat, but we do whatever we can to lead the way. But with prudence, someone will say, I'll go and sit in I'm going to gather together a thousand Jews. If the government is saying not to do so, if medical authorities are saying not to do so, that's not a tater way. It's not the Messir Snefesh. That's necessary. There are other ways to make a big noise and to respond to what is happening now by coming out with a call to all people that in addition to all the medical advice that we need to follow is we need to add and increase in prayer, in study, in mitzvahs. And there are many ways to do this, especially, as I said, the times of Rabbi Kivega, there was no technology that we have today. Today you can reach people without touching them, without being in their, their proximity physically. So why shouldn't we use this? Maybe this is the reason we have technology today, to be able to use these pipelines, these channels, these platforms, to make a tremendous call of creating a positive virus, a positive ripple effect that can impact the entire world and give it that type of strength and hope and confidence that we can overcome anything and become stronger through the process. Okay. A few more questions on this topic, and then I hope to talk about some other topics as well. Mashiach. I just want to state again, I said about the davening at home. Yes, if you, God forbid, have even a doubt that you may have the virus, why put others at risk? And absolutely, daven at home. I said Rabbi Akiva, Eger, and of course we have today rabbinic authorities stating the same. So just I want to make sure that's spelled out. Okay. We are taught that before Mashiach comes, the whole world will be in a hysterical panic. Can the coronavirus panic possibly be a sign of Mashiach's imminent arrival? Will Mashiach cure the coronavirus? Um, I don't recall which Maimar Chazal you're referring to, historical pan- hysterical panic. Yes, it says there will be different challenges, situations, but there's also many different signs for the Gul that are not always necessarily based on negative things. But regardless, as I mentioned before, everything is a sign from above. If this is reaching every human being on earth, there's no question there's an opportunity here. An opportunity to come out with a call for good that's even greater than all the hysteria and negativity associated with the coronavirus, the fears. So there's no question, based on the Rebbe's words, that we're at the threshold of Gula, that we have here an opportunity. 
as I've been elaborating on, an opportunity to use this situation to come out with a call. I don't believe and I don't subscribe unless you hear straight from the Rebbe's source, like when the, during the Persian Gulf War. The Rebbe quoted the al that there were nations attacking one nation, attacking another, that a Melech Arvi, a Melech Poras, a Persian king will attack a, an Arab nation, and people in the world will all come saying they're afraid, they're afraid, what will be? And the Jews will come and say they're afraid, what will be? And the Abishta answers, Bonai, my children, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Everything I did, I did for you. It's all signs of the Geula. So the Rebbe quoted that directly then. Can this be applied here? I'm always careful applying something that's not exactly the same situation because, yes, it's, it's, it's easy to start finding Mardrashim and Mardachazal, anything that happens, that this is a sign of Mashiach. It can sometimes spill over into the, across the line of sensationalism and uh, rather than being responsible, call for responsible action. But to say that things that happen are opportunities, absolutely. It's a spiritual opportunity. It's an opportunity to reach many people. It's an opportunity to transform the world, perhaps. That, yes. But I wouldn't want to associate directly to this type of hysteria. That, that's a sign that Mashiach's imminent arrival. We have to look at this as something we need to do and rise to the occasion and use this opportunity. And of course, Mashiach will come. All, not just the coronavirus, all viruses and all illness will be eradicated. Another question, which I find to be a little interesting, I'll just read it, because I always read everything, is coronavirus a trick to get us to start Pesach cleaning early? I don't know if it deserves a response. Well, we all would prefer it didn't come our way. There are many other reasons to start Pesach cleaning early, and I'm not even sure whether coronavirus, what it does to help us with Pesach cleaning. I understand it's about sterilizing, about cleansing, about getting rid of germs and so on. So if you're talking the deeper Ruchnizdika sense of it, that Pesach cleaning is not just cleaning the crumbs and cleaning up your house physically. If you're talking about spiritual cleansing in the sense of soul-searching and introspection, then it goes to the category we've been discussing. That's as much as I would say on that topic. Okay. So a related question, which is not, it's direct, it's direct, indirect, is like this. Why aren't from Jews encouraged to become doctors? With all that's going on with coronavirus, and especially because the Torah considers saving lives the most important thing, why aren't from Yidin encouraged to study medicine to help people and save lives? We know that Jews have contributed a tremendous amount to modern medicine. However, it has almost exclusively been secular Jews. If Jews have a skill in medicine, shouldn't we try to save people's lives? Yet this is not encouraged. In fact, medical school, as other professional schools, is even discouraged. Why is that? And another related question, Jews seem to be very good at medicine and likely have saved millions of people with their medical inventions. Being that saving a Jewish life is the most important thing in the Torah, doesn't it follow that the most important profession is a medical profession from Jews, especially pertinent now due to the current pandemic? Well, I don't really see the connection between the two. Whether medicine is a noble profession, absolutely, it saves lives, brings healing to the world. And there are quite a few from Jews that are doctors. So I'm not sure exactly what, what, um, what, the point, what your point is here. The fact that there's a pandemic, yes, means that we need as much medical attention as possible. But the issue of whether to encourage yeshiva bochum 
young men and women, to become doctors or to become lawyers for that matter or other professions, as much as as noble as it is, there's also a thing called soul doctors. Because right now, just as we need medical intervention, physical medical intervention, we also need spiritual medical intervention. Giving people hope, confidence, strength to um, alleviate fear, panic, and all the other things that are coming out of this whole thing. So, without taking away from the medical profession, and is absolutely one of the most noble things a person can do, I don't see the connection one to the next. There are many doctors out there, many good doctors. Someone has to make an individual decision that's up to them. But the idea, in general, the Rebbe, as leader of the generation, made it clear what his opinion was on this matter, that most importantly we need soul doctors. Now that doesn't mean if somebody becomes a physical medical doctor, there's something wrong with that. On the contrary, it's a great thing to do. So that would be the answer. And we need both, and each of us fills that role. You could also ask the question, forget about from Jews. Why hasn't everyone become doctors? Since healing is so important, because we need different people have different skills and different professions, and to have a healthy world, you need diverse different skills and different, um, the, uh, different interventions. So there are people who are accountants, and there are people who are lawyers, and there are people who are doctors, and there are people who are business people, educators, schooling. I mean, the list goes on. So as important as one may be, we don't all necessarily have to do the same thing. Now, if there was a shortage of doctors, whereas where you literally see that there's no one around, that's another story. The responsibility then would be, obviously, to bring healing. But that's not our situation at all. Okay. Well, I didn't cover everything because there's limits. I'll try to continue this discussion. Maybe we won't need to. Hopefully we won't need to talk about it anymore. But I just want to say on a concluding note here, Again, we have to do whatever it takes medically. We have to be vigilant and careful. But at the same time, that does not need to be emotionally panicky, frightful, fearful, and so on. So we have an opportunity now to teach ourselves and others how you can be both at once, to have that proper balance. And that proper balance means that we are confident that we will conquer this. We're confident that will become stronger as a result. And we're confident that above all, human beings were put on this earth to fulfill a spiritual mission, to transform this world into a divine home. At times we may be challenged, and those challenges are meant to bring out even greater strengths. This is a tremendous opportunity for a call of unity. Because here you see the virus does not discriminate between peoples, between nations, between religions, between creeds, cultures, and races, and so on. It does not discriminate. So that is, in a positive sense, a call of unity that we're all in this together. <coughs> and we all have to do whatever is possible to support each other, to say a kind word, to be giving kinder, gentler, in every possible way. And that itself gives strength when people see that we're, to get, we're in it together. And there's a synergy of many people coming together. Those that need to fight the illness and figure out antidotes or other ways of protective measures is one aspect, a critical aspect. And then there's the rest of us doing things that are extremely vital 
on giving people that strength and courage and confidence and knowing that you have someone you can turn to, showing support, people who may be elderly, people who may be sickly, to do things that can help make alleviate this crisis and come out, as I said, stronger people. This is what the nations of the world, the leaders of the world, and all of us individuals, grassroots, should really be declaring that not only are we not panicking and not just running for cover and protecting our own skin, but we see this as an opportunity of uniting in a national, international, local, communal, familial scale in every possible way. Okay. So with that, let's go now to another question, which is not directly related, since this is the 300th episode. Sasson wrote to, wrote to us, Mazel Tov and approaching the 300th episode of My Life Chassidus Applied. What would you say are the three most important everyday lessons for the average person you have learned from Chassidus? Okay, it's a very good question. I'll just, uh, over the bat, say the three things and of course, it's never limited to three, but just since you're asking three things, I will say, number one, the indispensable value of every human being on earth. And I'm saying it also in context of the coronavirus. That you matter, not just to yourself and your family, but to the entire universe and to God himself. You have something to accomplish in this world that you and only you can accomplish. Your unique mission statement. When we see a pandemic affecting and possibly affecting everyone, remember on the positive end, every one of us is valuable. There's no one negligible, God forbid. So that's lesson number one. The Selim Alakim, the divine image in which you were created and the mission you were given and charged with. Every word of Chassidus comes to empower us in that way, to teach how the human being is a microcosm of the entire universe and that you and each of us have you and I and each one of us has an indispensable mission to accomplish. The second thing I would say is, again, in the same spirit of what the situation is today, is that we are always blessed with the ability to be joyous, happy, and upbeat, optimistic human beings. That we are not a victim of circumstances. We control our destiny. And even when things may be difficult at times, you control how you will navigate through it. It's all about our attitude. This is the second point Chassidus teaches. You look in the chapters 26 and on in Tanya, where he talks about the importance of always serving with joy and not, God forbid, with atzvus, with depression, with, um, with, uh, with, uh, with melancholy and negative feelings. Because that itself gives you the power to overcome any given situation. That's number two. And number three is the search for unity. That wherever you go, whatever happens in your life, is all part of a choreography of Hashem Echad, of one unifying narrative. And it's our job is to find the dots, the pieces, in the words of Chassidus uh, and Kabbalah, the sparks that are allocated to each one of us and recognizing that they're all connected to your unified purpose in life and to express divine unity in a frag- rather an otherwise fragmented universe. So the search for unity and the ability to discover that unity 
And as history rolled on, rolls on, that unity has become more and more apparent, especially in our technological age. And again, with the coronavirus, you see a certain unity. <coughs> On one hand, God forbid, any virus actually is, is disunity. It creates divisiveness. It breaks things down. But it's also uniting us because we see that we're all in it together and we're all fragile equally. Nobody is immune. There's no person on earth, no matter how wealthy, no matter how powerful, no matter how influential, that's immune. Because at the end of the day, we are mortal human beings, as I mentioned before, vulnerable, fragile creatures. And I say that in a positive way. So that too demonstrates the unity that we all, do, we, all, we, all, we all share. And our mission is to reveal the divine unity in everything that exists. Those are the three lessons I would say. And uh, I'm sure there are more, but that will suffice for now. Okay. Now, a few words about the time when we're in. This, this program, of course, is a little different because of the coronavirus discussion. But I, want, I didn't want to ignore that we are going, that we have, the, as I mentioned, this is the week of Pasha Vayakab Chafei Adar, the birthday of the Rebetzin. It's also the birthday of the world, according to one opinion. And Pasha Sachedish next Shabbos. So just briefly. Well, I'm going to begin with the, with the Rebetzin. In 1988... In Chofei Adr, this was um, the Rebetzin was in the style that passed away Chofei Shvat. So we're talking about a month, less a month later was her birthday. The Rebbe then came out, even though he had already encouraged it before, but he came out with a global campaign birthday to honor and celebrate a birthday as a day of introspection, a day of celebration, a day of committing. And the Rebbe gave out a whole bunch of directives how to use the birthday and make it truly meaningful. A day of commitment to moral study, Torah, prayer, mitzvahs, fabrenging, taking on new resolutions. He did it on the birthday of his own Rebetzin, which was also, as I said, one opinion. The two opinions when the world was created. B'chofei El Nivre'elam or B'chofei Oder Nivre'elam. So if the 25th of El we go by Rosh Hashanah is six days later when the human being was created. But according to the opinion of Chofeyodah, would be the human being being created. And it's already been discussed, and we discussed in this program as well, that both opinions are accurate. Some talk about the Pnimis of the world, some of the Chetzenis of the world, the Machshove, when the world was created in the thought, when it was created in actuality. But regardless, 25th of Adar has in it the meaning of birthday. Birthday of existence itself, and of course the human being, in this case the Rebetzin, is a microcosm of existence. So it teaches us what I said before about you mattering. Your birthday matters. You're created by God on this and this day. That value. I'm connected to Pasha's Achedish. Achedish is Achedish Azalachem, which is the Pasha we always read either in Rishchedish Shabbos Rishchedish Nisan or the Shabbos before Rishchedish Nisan because it's the, ble- it's the first mitzvah that was told to Meshach Rabbeinu right before the Jews left Egypt. When Hashem says to Meshach Rabbeinu, he tells him to look up into heaven. He says, This is the new moon. That will be your new moon. You'll sanctify the new moon. This will be your renewal. And indeed, 15 days from now will be the redemption from the exile of the Egyptian exile. The renewal of the Jewish people. So the moon has become symbolic. That we're compared to the moon. We count by the moon because the moon's renewal 
teaches us about renewal. Essentially, that's what a birthday is about. Every year, your contract is renewed. But of course, it's just not limited to a birthday. The idea of renewal, the word chedesh comes month, but it also means chedesh, because it's a new moon. Now you could say it's not a new moon, it's the same moon. It's only the light that changes, that, that, because it's the angle of how the moon shines, reflects the sun to the earth. But that is vital, because the way it reflects the sun to the earth is exactly what its purpose was. So when we say a new moon, even though technically it's not a new moon, but it's a renewal of its light and energy which teaches us the message of renewal, that no matter what happens in life, you always have the opportunity to renew. It's a tremendous lesson in general, especially in chassidus applied, applying chassidus to life, because we get so often caught up in the monotony and the boredom and the routines of life, we forget that there's a chidush, that there's something, a new spark, a new divine energy. Every moment, every moment his existence is renewed. And finally, Vayakab Pakudeh. So the Rebbe talks about Vayakab Pakudeh that in some years, those two chapters are separate. But in most years, in many years, like this year, it comes together. Vayakel and Pakudeh seemingly have two different meanings. Vayakel means to gather together. Vayakel. Kehila, kahal. Pakudeh means to count. When you count, you count individuals. So one seems to focus on the collective, the group, and the other focuses on the individual. So Rebbe says that's exactly the way it's meant to be. Because when you ask the question, are we really part of a larger community or are we individuals? Which is more important, individuality or conformity? And the answer is both are necessary. Look at the human body. Look at nature. On one hand, it's as diverse as it gets. Every different systems and different organisms and so on. But they all work together in a harmony, a synchronicity. Same with the human body. So is it more important the individuality of the brain, of the heart, of the liver, of the other organs, of the eyes, of the ears, or that they all work as one body? The answer is both are correct. You want the specifics. You don't want the eyes to be the ears, God forbid, and so on. But you want them to work in a total harmony. So it's a vayakel as in one harmony, but of pchudeh of each individual. Each individual is necessary. Hillel said, If I'm not for myself, what will I be? That's Pekudeh. If I'm only for myself, what am I? That's Vayakel. So it seems like a paradox initially, but all of nature and the human body are best teachers to us of how we bring harmony within diversity. And again, a lesson for the coronavirus environment we're in right now, that yes, each of us sometimes may need to be quarantined or individually being alone and isolated because of the spread of the virus, to, to prevent the spread. But at the same time, that does not make us alone. That just means for the health of the community, for all of us, we may need that for a moment. So it's not about separating and, and isolating and um, quarantining in a negative sense. It's necessary now for the health of the large organism, meaning the entire earth, the entire population. We may need that for the moment. So these are lessons that can be learned in Vayakal Pekudeh for us as well. We come from Parsha Kisisa, Keren. Some point out Keren comes from the word Karon, similar to Keser. And as I discussed in the, in the video I did on Purim, Karona, crown, is due to the crown-like, um, the crown-like 
spikes that are that uh, are emerging from the virus when you see it magnified it looks like crown like spikes that protrude from the virus but crown could also be kesser of gedusha and it could be kesser of klipa I'm not going to go over what I've said already on this topic but just briefly that the goal here is is to take the kesser the corona virus the negative form and transform it into a super rational kesser of gedusha Amolek and Homon represent Kesar of Klip, Reshiz Goyim Amolek. Divisive, harmful, as a virus, as a negative virus is. And the way transforming it is bringing in a supra-rational, there's chutzpah belay taga, a chutzpah, irrational chutzpah. Worse than every type of Klip, every type of negative energy. And the transformation of that is in Shtuz de Gdusha, is that to become a supra-rational commitment to love, to care, to kindness, to goodness, to unity, and all the other values that we discussed earlier. Okay. A little cross-referencing, as I often do, on, uh, tw- on uh, uh, episode 25th of Other and Parshachesh, I also discussed in episode 60, 110, 155, 203, and 255. And in 59, episodes 59, 105, 106, 155, 204, and 250, and 251. Like to be complete here. Okay. Where are we now? Completely different question is a little follow up from Kisisa and Purim, which I'm going to do now. So, Purim, of course, we talked about last week, special Purim edition about why God's name is not written explicitly in the Megillah, in the story of Purim, because the miracle was hidden. So someone asked the following question. In contrast, the miracles of the Purim story were hidden as natural events versus the miracles of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, which suspended the natural order of the physical world and were overtly open miracles. Yes, exactly, that's the contrast. Purim took a period of around nine years, the entire event. But if you were there at the time, you may not have even noticed, because it all seemed like random events. Akashverj becomes king and then he gets angry at Vashti and he has her killed, and he, then he chooses Esther, and the whole story. But when you look in retrospect, you see the connecting the dots, there was a miracle. This is called a Nes Melubish Beteba, a miracle that is manifest in natural events. Yitzhak was very overt, the ten plagues that were supernatural, and all the different events that were very overt and open miracles. So the question this person is asking, my question is, what type of miracle is better? a supernatural miracle or a miracle hidden in nature. And why did the miracles of Purim need to be covert and the miracles of Pesach need to be supernatural? Okay, very good question. So the truth is, just to broaden the question, there's also a third category, pure nature. What do I mean by pure nature? Even though God creates in Hashgachah, divine providence everywhere, but there are things Purim is a special event. Yes, it's a miracle that happens within the construct of nature so to speak camouflaged by natural events but then there's regular nature see even though in this way you can say every night even breathing is a miracle but it's not a miracle we don't call a miracle like Purim we don't say Hallel and other things that designate when the miracle happens so what exactly so we have nature we have a miracle manifest through nature and we have a miracle that's an open miracle so what's going on here Chassidus explains that we need all three so to ask the question, which is better, they're all necessary. The ultimate kavana purpose of creation is that there shouldn't be ein seim 
We don't rely on miracles, and God doesn't do miracles for no reason. The purpose is to go into a natural world, quote-unquote natural, meaning under the laws of nature, governed by these laws of nature, and make a dira betachtenim, and make a home for the divine in natural means. That's why we don't do mitzvahs through miracle. Man, my way is the famous story with Alter Rebbe, that even though he was able to stop the boat, in order to be Mekadosh Levana, he, he and he stopped it, he wanted it to be natural. So he had, had the captain of the boat stop it naturally. Because the purpose is to permeate existence. If we're going to bring in above supernatural events, then you're not transforming existence, you're overwhelming existence. At the same time, you also want to have at times a recognition of the divine hand. So we have a nest, Odim Nisi, which lifts our spirits and shows us and reveals us that there's a hand, there's a divine hand. So in any interface between the divine and existence, the main purpose is to do it through existence. That's nature. Then there are miracles that happen from time to time, like, like, like Pesach, that teach us that there's a force that's higher than nature. To remind us, don't get caught up in the natural circumstance, even though that is the purpose of existence, but you need to be reminded there's a higher hand. So where's Nesma Lubish Bateva fit in? That's a perfect balance between the two. On one hand, it's a natural. On the other hand, it's really a miracle happening within the natural. So when you think in terms of a real interface, the natural existence is the real kavana, the real purpose of transforming the world. The miracles within nature work on the terms of nature, but it's really a higher hand. And then there's the miracles that are beyond nature that remind us of a divine that is completely beyond existence. So all three are necessary. And it depends on each time. Each one does its thing. That's why it's not a question why Purim was this way, Pesach, each one. Purim happened later in life, later in history, I should say. It happened between the first temple and the second. It was a time of Golis. And it was meant to also permeate the Golis Dik alive, the natural world. And Pesach happened in the beginning when the Jews just became a nation. So then it was important that that it was from an Asusa de la Elo would be the right expression. That it came from a generated from energy from above. That's a miracle. Purim is a combination of above and below. That's why that was the time when we when we consummated Matan Tera's Sinai, which was from above. Kofalem Karkigigis. Maidoraisi, you could do it. And after Sinai, the Jews could still argue we were forced in a way. We were coerced because it came from above. It was a miracle from above. Purim is from below, but still a miracle because God's hand is just working in an invisible way. And then the ultimate is to take that, those two strengths and permeate existence itself and make it into a divine home. And that is the ultimate because you're transforming existence into making it divine. Okay. And see also episode 237 where I discuss this a bit more. Okay. So a little follow-up. Let's just do some follow-up. So why was Moshe not punished for smashing the luchas? What a chutzpah. God gives you a, pr- a present that he made with his own hands and you smash it because you got angry about people bowing to a stupid golden cow. Moshe Rabbeinu was punished for his anger when he hit the rock instead of speaking nicely to the rock as commanded. Does it say anywhere that Hashem was upset at Moshe for breaking the luchas in anger? And finally, a third question. In this passage, we read about the golden calf. We're talking about Kisisa. 
At first, God tells Moshe that he will destroy all the Jews and begin a new nation from Moshe. Moshe begs God to reconsider and forgive them. Then the first thing Moshe does when he comes down the mountain is to instruct people to pick up swords and massacre anyone involved in building the golden calf. The Torah records 3,000 3, people being killed. What happened to Moshe on his way down the mountain that he lost the spirit of forgiveness? Why was Moshe's actions on the mountain asking God for forgiveness inconsistent with his action after he came down the mountain and went on a rampage? Okay, so first of all, I'm not so comfortable with the language being used here, the anger and so on, and uh, so let me clarify a few things. Moshe Rabbein did not break the luchas out of anger. Rashi says clearly in Parashat Kisisa, it was very deliberate. He received the luchas. This is even a greater than the, the greatest Sefer Teir. When a Torah scroll falls on the floor by accident, God forbid, it's considered a tragedy. They fast. It's a sign of things. You have to look into it. It's a soul search and so on. Here, Moshe takes the ultimate Sefer Teir, more than a Sefer Teir, more than a written scroll, engraved by the God created the, the tablets, engraved the tablets, the Luchas Hashanahs. Moshe comes down with it, and suddenly he shatters them. So Rashi says, it's like the Ksuba. The tablets were like the marriage contract. When Moshe saw that they defied God, and they transgressed the cardinal sin, don't have false gods, and by building a golden calf... <laughs> What Moshe did was, to protect the Jewish people, he did something unbelievable. He shattered the tablets like tearing the contract and saying they didn't receive it. They heard it. They heard the command, but they didn't receive the tablet. They didn't receive the contract. The Rebbe, in a very powerful Sikha, Simchus Teda, Tov Shem 1986, talked about why this was the greatest act Moshe did, as Rashi says at the end of Chumash. Yeshe God says, thank you for breaking the tablets. Because through that you preserve the people. But this is such a sad event. It's the 17th of Tammuz when he broke the tablets. That's considered to be a fast day. But within it lay a certain profound love. And it was the way that Moshe was able to elicit from God forgiveness because he said the Jews ultimately did not receive the contract. So was he God upset at him? It says, And it was not out of anger. And it wasn't a stupid golden cow. It was defying God himself. But Moshe was cared about the Jews more than anything else, which is later he says to Hashem when he asked for forgiveness, erase my name from this book. Which book? Torah's Chaim. Erase my name from the Torah if you're not going to forgive the people. So then you ask the question, what about the 3,000? It's not a contradiction. Because God said all the people were responsible. Moshe understood there's accountability. There were people who actually instigated and did this great grave sin. We're not, they're not off the hook. Even when Moshe went to ask for forgiveness in the spirit of forgiveness, it wasn't like off the hook. It was saying that even though you all sinned in a certain way, I will dig deeper and find a connection and forgiveness and shuva and so on. But those that have to be accountable are accountable. And 3,000 is a lot, but it's also relative to the rest of the people. He saved the people. So it's not a contradiction. Okay, a few follow-ups from Purim. Why don't we call the Purim heroes by their Hebrew birth names, Psachia and Hadassah, as I discussed last week? Especially if the whole problem began because the attendees of Achashverosh's party enjoyed themselves too much, instead of just attending because the king required it. I.e., they were so entrenched in Persian culture and enjoying it 
that they were losing their Jewish identity. So why do we identify them by their Persian names Mordechai and Esther, also known as Marduk and Ishtar? That's precisely, as I said before, Purim, Psachia and Adasah is pure holy, it's like the miracle, the revelation itself. Purim was about transforming the natural. But on the other hand, Marduk and Esther are real names of deities that are, you're not allowed to mention them. So Mordechai and Esther is like an in-between. It's names that are in some way related to the Persian names, but they're also Hebrew names. They have Hebrew meanings. So that's where they had the transformation. Psachi and Adasi would not be transforming the existence, the natural existence that Purim came to transform. I have a follow-up Purim question, another question. Last week you said women are obligated to hear Megillah, even though it's a mitzvah, a seishazman grama, which means time-related. Because women took part in the miracle. Yeah, they were in the miracle. Esther, and also because women were also redeemed from Haman's genocide decree. But in that case, why don't all women have to lie to Menorah? Yehudas was part of the Hanukkah redemption story, and women were also under the decree of the Greeks of not learning Torah. So first of all, women also are responsible mitzvahs of Hanukkah. The question is, there could be Yates, someone could be Yates. Look, the Megillah is read usually by man, even though there are the, the questions on that, but it's read by a man. That doesn't mean that the women are, are, are absolved of the mitzvah. The point is they're part of it. So they also celebrate Hanukkah. Who lies the menet is already more of a technicality. Okay. Then finally the question is, how do we reconcile two opposing statements? The guardian of Israel never slumbers or sleeps. He and two, God was asleep and not protecting the Jews during the Purim story, alluded to when the Megillah says the sleep of the king was interrupted. So Chassidus Taka brings, famous Mamorim, Tavshin, Tavshechov, and others, that refers to the Melech, the Ebeshtim. That in a way, till that point, the Golis and the Gzeda meant that God, in a sense, was like concealed and the Jews were in great danger. That night, the king could not sleep, refers to God so-called waking up. So the question is asked, don't we say that God never sleeps? It's an excellent question, but the question goes on many, many different things. When we speak about Golos and Geula, time of the Beis Hamidosh, the divine was awake. Time of Golos, we say the divine is in a state of sleep. So how is that? How do we reconcile? It's just different levels of revelation. That there's no question that God is always present. Even in the darkest times, God is present. And He's protecting. However, in Golos, there's also a certain type of concealment. And therefore, you could see nations could have control over the Jewish people. Even Shechinta is Begolos. Even the Shechina is in a form of displacement. So, it's not a contradiction, just like we say, I'm asleep, but my heart is awake. There's a divine presence, even in the darkest moments. And he protects, especially in a Yisrael, in special certain circumstances, certain, certain circumstances. But that's not a contradiction. There are times when there's more concealment, like we see in the month of Av, a little more concealment. In the month of Tishrei or other, there's more revelation. So that's when you need to have an awakening. You want to have that, even the divine that's present, that was present in the story of Purim, even before the king could not sleep, should actually come alive and become present and actually affect the situation that they should actually 
bring the miracle of Purim. Same thing now. Even though the coronavirus is a moment of concealment, that doesn't mean that God is not protecting. We just have to access it and pray and hope and do what we have to do to initiate, to generate that revelation to be revealed and bring all people healing and bring the world geula, redemption. Okay. Let me do now the chassidus question. So always a chassidus question. Seeing God's face. Can you give some insight into the strange conversation between God and Moshe, mentioning in, the, mentioned in this week's Pasha, meaning Kisisa, where Moshe asked God to see his face, and God says, sorry, you can't see my face, but if you wait a minute, I'll turn around and show you my back. Was God making fun of Moshe? Usually showing your back to someone is a sign of disrespect. And that's why when we left Yechidus with the Rebbe, we would walk out backwards. So we didn't disrespect the Rebbe by showing our back. Okay. So I discussed this in episode 249, a very powerful sikha from the Rebbe, Tainus Esther, Tov Shemem Ches, where the Rebbe speaks about this, because there's a few questions here. I'll just briefly sum up. Moshe asks, Show me your glory, show me your face. I want to see your essence, not just your expression, your revelation. God says, No person can see me and live. And then goes, God goes on and says, You'll see my back. But my face you will not see. Question number one. You already said, God already said, that no one can see me and live. Why does he have to say again, It's like rubbing it in. You'll see my back, but my face you won't see. Question number two. Since Moshe's request was not granted, why are we told the story? Why is it even begnusen of a behemoth, of an animal, we don't talk negatively? Why do we have to know that Moshe's request was not granted? God didn't grant it. Why, do we t- why are we told the story? And question number three, why Taka was it not granted? Well, Moshe didn't understand you can't see God's essence. He didn't understand you can't see God and, and, and remain alive. And Tzadik Gezer and Tzadik decrees, God fulfills. So why Taka didn't, wasn't it fulfilled? And the Rebbe answers, and the, later we found it in the Ponim Yofis, from the Baal uh, flaw, what did the Rebbe answer? That, the, that you have to read the verse like this, I'll show you my back and my face, but my face you will see by by not looking. So you could see by direct, direct observation. And my my inner essence, you can only see through Shlila, through Shlila. So all that questions are answered. Maisha was granted what he asked. But you can't see it on your terms. You have to not look with your eyes and then you'll see it. You'll see it, in other words, through, through extrapolation. So he was granted. And the Abish is not rubbing it in. The Abish is saying, Uponai, but Uponai through Layuro. That's the Nikud of what the Rebbe said then. So it's not rubbing it in, it's not about back, but it's seeing the divine, when we say the back of God, we mean the divine revelation, expression, definitions, and then there's the essence of the divine, which is ponai, and that's through by, by not looking. Okay. Okay, well, let me just do three essays we've been doing. This is still the essays of 2019. We're middle of marking, the judges are middle of marking the essays for 2020. So three essays. The first one is in Hebrew, Chassidus Hamivgash Achadash, 
which means chassidus is the the new uh, the new attitude or the new approach, the new encounter with the world, the new way of looking at the world. By Pas Shavit, age thirty-five, Herzliya, Israel. Avrakel, he's a works is is a is in the Kailal at Amat Aviv in Israel. So he talks exactly about that how Chassidus gave us a whole new approach of interacting with the world, and not by running away from it, not by being succumbed by it and overwhelmed by it, but transforming it. And speaks about especially in our times of how we create that balance. So it's a whole new way of interacting with the world, a very interesting and creative, original way of doing that. Very well done. And then speaks about real practical ways of achieving it through contemplation, his bonanus, gives different examples from the Esrig and, uh, and practical bullet points of how one can look at the world in a new way, with new eyes through the lens of Chassidus. The second essay is At Kamach Shuva HaKavona Bekim HaMitzvahs. How important is Kavona intention in performing mitzvahs? Dori Galili, age 45, Sterot, Israel. Amadox. A uh, engineer in the Amadox, the company. Okay. And this one is exactly as the title suggests. Kavona, the power of intention. Not just doing a mitzvah mechanically, but actually in a way that has kavonin. Now, this is also very well done in a poetic way. She wrote it poetically, so it has an additional creative side to it. And, um, and basically comes to explain a mitzvah from the way we look at it, the way God looks at it, and then combining both together. Well, again, a very well done essay. Very, very enjoyable to read. This and all other new essays can be seen at com. Okay, and if you subscribe to our weekly emails, we'll send, we send you a notice of when these new essays are posted. And finally, the third one is in English, Bullying and Opportunity, Not a Threat, by Mendel Wilhelm, age 23, London, England. Student, Yeshiva Lubavitch, London. An Opportunity, Not a Threat, Bullying. So, of course, it's a big topic. And some think, he says, that some people say it doesn't go further than primary school, which is not accurate. In this essay, we will learn, based on teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, how bullying is an opportunity to fix, change, solve, and undo an internal void, and uncomfort that lies in the depth of a person's heart and being the depth of the bully and the bully, meaning the bully, the person who's being bullied. We will focus on the fundamentals of loving every single Jew unconditionally, as demonstrated by the Tzemach Tzedek, Derech Mitzvah and goes on to analyze and dissect what bullying is, the difference between children and adults. Why do bullies bully? It's easy to win, but the right thing to do is fix. And goes on to explain how that can be transformed. Why can't one cure oneself when helping others, one helps oneself? With practical applications of a very serious and important topic called bullying. Okay, with that we conclude My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 300. I want to conclude that, firstly, may we all get through this challenge that we are right now in that's affecting so many people, definitely eliminating any form of fear or panic and hysteria. Um, recognize that's a challenge, yes, we have to do what needs to be done, but we have the strengths, the inner strengths to do, to rise to the occasion and be greater people and be a light unto everyone around us. God should protect everyone, 
anyone that, God forbid, has gotten the virus should heal quickly with no, no effects. Um, and, uh, and the rest of us should be protected not to get it in the first place. And hopefully life can get back to normal. But maybe not normal in the regular sense. Normal in that we're much a heightened sense of consciousness of our own reliance on God and recognizing that our lives are not in our total control. Everyone have a very blessed week. And we go from the month of other of joy to the month of Nisan of redemption. And we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 300. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.